Hello, everybody. This podcast is a part of the Saskatchewan Podcast Network, and that's supported by the Ministry of Highways. If you come across a work zone on the highway, there could be construction or maintenance activities in progress. It's important to slow down. Fines triple if workers are present. If no workers are present, the speed limit is still 60. Plus, hazards could still exist, like a rough road, a sharp drop off the pavement, or loose stones. See the signs, know the facts, slow to 60 in work zones. It's a safe thing to do. For more details on work zones, visit saskatchewan.ca slash workzone. This message is sponsored by the government of Saskatchewan. In 1986, Aerosmith manager Tim Collins received a phone call from a 22-year-old unknown hip-hop producer and entrepreneur. It was a surprising call for Collins, to say the least. The kid was a student at New York University who, in his spare time, co-founded the fast-rising hip-hop record label Def Jam. The kid's name? Rick Rubin. Why was this young rap mogul in the making talking to the manager of an old rock group? Well, Rubin grew up on 70s rock, Ted Nugent, ACDC, Boston, and of course, Aerosmith. He couldn't escape this ambitious idea of combining some of his favorite childhood music to this new upstart genre he dearly loved in hip-hop, still on the fringes of mainstream music. Rubin presented to Collins the idea of remaking Aerosmith's 1975 hard rock hit, Walk This Way, with a rap group on his roster, Run DMC. As Rubin rambled on in an attempt to convince him, Collins had to cut him off. He asked Rubin, what's rap? A more valid question for most people in the mid-80s might have been, what's an Aerosmith? By 1986, substance abuse and bitter infighting had taken its toll on Aerosmith. The suburban white kids who had once been the Boston band's faithful constituency had matured and moved on. Guitarist Joe Perry had left for a number of years before a disappointing solo career guided him back to his former outfit, who without their guitarist, was going in the same direction. Their 1985 reunion album, Done With Mirrors, barely made a dent on the charts, with MTV largely ignoring what seemed like a dinosaur band fizzling out by that point. They hadn't had a Billboard Top 10 single since the original Walk This Way a decade earlier. A new generation was turning instead towards exactly the hip-hop sounds that Rubin and Def Jam co-founder Russell Simmons were selling them. When Collins relayed Rubin's offer to Joe Perry and Aerosmith singer Steven Tyler, they were skeptical. Rubin had sold Aerosmith the idea as a crossover opportunity for both groups. But Collins, Perry, and Tyler were worried this might ruin their credibility. Aerosmith's brand was the hard rockin' bad boys from Boston. They didn't try to appeal to the masses, they weren't filled with any pop shine, and they certainly didn't cater to what was popular in mainstream music. What would their diehard fans they still had think about collaborating with a hip-hop group? It's important to remember that hip-hop was not only this fringe genre of music that barely got any radio play, but what did get attention were borderline novelty songs like Sugar Hill Gang's Rapper's Delight. In the end, Aerosmith figured they had nothing to lose. The crossover opportunity rhetoric that Rubin had brought up ultimately convinced both Run DMC and Aerosmith to agree. One day in the studio is all it took to transform this 70s hit, steeped in the hard rock genre, into an immortal party anthem. And the video was finally what got Aerosmith the MTV approval they were desperate for. Rubin's crossover prophecy came true. 
The two bands, the sleazy old rock slags and the box fresh rap crew, are rehearsing in adjacent rooms and engaged in a loudness war, but join forces when Tyler literally smashes down the wall between the two rooms, or what could be seen as two genres, and maybe most importantly, two races. The clip instantly took Run DMC and Aerosmith into the MTV mainstream. It gave Run DMC the title holder for first rap single on Billboard's Top 10 and made them the first rap act on the cover of Rolling Stone, but one could argue that Aerosmith benefited more from taking the risk. It put them on a contemporary hits radio format for the first time, and it achieved a different sort of crossover. If Run DMC's was racial, Aerosmith's was generational. Kids whose contemporary poodle rock heroes were Bon Jovi and Motley Crue welcomed Tyler and Perry as elder statesmen, and their next album, Permanent Vacation, sold 5 million copies, 10 times more than its predecessor, while the next two did even better. It also made them a truly global band for the first time. Aerosmith was suddenly a household name. A pivot in Aerosmith's musical direction was risky, but it was a kick in the ass they needed. Ballads like Angel drew in the coveted female demographic and propelled them back into packed arenas, while it was still tasteful enough that it didn't feel like they had turned their backs on their old audience. As Joe Perry would later say, they kept shedding layers of skin, they kept adapting, but the true spirit of the band never left, and it's what kept them going. Nothing's worse than when a band stops taking chances and puts out the same record four times in a row. But as Aerosmith came to realize, it's scary to get out of your comfort zone, away from something tried and true. In 1990, Metallica was faced with that crossroad. They had built a solid following over the course of four albums, staying loyal to their mission of producing bone-crunching thrash metal. They didn't give a shit about commercial success. In the age of MTV, they had only just released their first ever music video in 1988, with one, a seven minutes plus single about a World War I soldier begging God to take his life? It would ultimately lead to their first Grammy nomination, but it was very much the blueprint of Metallica up to that point, a predictable angle in the direction they were taking their music. Apocalyptic lyrics layered over sophisticated music had been the formula. For the four members of Metallica, just the fact that people could put their music into a formula was upsetting. What risks were they avoiding? What new direction could they take with their music? If they had already conquered the underground, what was left? In an era when it was felt that it had all been seen and heard before, there was one corner Metallica had never ventured into before. To make the one record, the one outrageous move, they had sworn as kids they would fight to the death never to make. Yet the one they were now swiftly coming to realize their musical lives might depend on. That is something so blatantly commercial, no one could have seen it coming. Or as drummer Lars Ulrich put it, cram Metallica down everybody's fucking throat all over the fucking world. This is the story of Metallica's 1991 self-titled album, more popularly known as The Black Album. Stories behind some of the most famous albums in music history. It's Beyond the Beat with Jared Lennon. It was July of 1990 at a Toronto festival where Metallica was appearing second on the bill to none other than Aerosmith. 
Metallica frontman James Hetfield and Lars had gathered together, along with their manager, Cliff Bernstein, for what Lars would later characterize as a famous sort of state of the band meeting. Where were they, and where would they like to go? Top-level stuff. They were reflecting on their tour to support their latest release, 1988's And Justice For All, as it was winding to a close. As the discussion dragged into the topic of their next album, one thing remained clear, they didn't want to make an And Justice For All Part 2. The long, intricate, almost prog metal songs had not translated into their live show as they originally would have hoped. The ten-minute, epic, convoluted songs were leaving the crowds bored. Plus, artistically, they had felt they'd taken their progressive thrash concept as far as they could. Cliff Bernstein posed a series of questions as the talk went on. If you want your careers to continue on its upward trajectory, do you have the courage to try take Metallica to the next level? Or had Metallica already reached its highest plateau? How do each of you see the story of Metallica panning out now that you've reached the success you've already achieved? Bernstein referenced the Misfits as a huge part of their influence, their song Last Caress being a minute and a half long, telling Lars and James that the Rolling Stones' Jumpin' Jack Flash is a part of who you are, you just haven't released it yet. By the end of the 1980s, Metallica's place as thrash metal's biggest band was unassailable. It was at that sit-down meeting where they decided to set their sights on an even greater prize, becoming the world's biggest rock band, period. On the surface, they'd have to play the same games other famous bands and pop artists play to get to the top, but they vowed to never stray away from being themselves, being genuine Metallica. So as they wrapped up their touring schedule for the year, focus turned to their new musical direction and the album that would accompany it. In August of 1990, James met up with Lars to go through their usual pre-production demo process before recording an album. They would sort through hours of a cassette they simply called the Riff Tape. It was a collection of rough guitar riffs and melodies they'd collected over the years, whatever wasn't used in previous albums, and whatever new ideas came into the fold. A lot came during the 240-odd nights of the Justice Tour. Its contents would form the basis of the next album. Almost every Metallica song from day one is started around a riff. It forms the foundation and the base of the song, and from there, they work their way up. It just so happened to be one of lead guitarist Kirk Hammett's riffs that caught their attention early on. It came from one of Kirk's typical 3 o'clock in the morning jams with just him and his guitar. He was messing around randomly when out came this simple riff pattern with a great groove, inspired by the heavy riffs on Soundgarden's 1989 album Louder Than Love. I tried to write the heaviest thing I could think of, Hammett later said. I was all fired up. What caught Lars and James' attention upon listening back to it that it encapsulated the back-to-basics approach they were looking for with the new album. According to Lars, it would be the foundation to guide the whole record, even before it had lyrics. That track that took no longer than one or two days to write would become Metallica's biggest song ever, eventually to be titled Enter Sandman. Initially, Kirk had the first part of the riff, but also a tale, and would just repeat it over and over. To Lars, it sounded convoluted, and he convinced Kirk to just simplify it, and to repeat the first part three times, and then the tale. As Ulrich later explained with a smile, could have been a whole different story if he hadn't, could have been still living in the East Bay. Although it would take James another seven months to write the lyrics in the studio, he had already decided on a title. Metallica not only kept a running riff tape, but also a song titles list. Enter Sandman had been on the list for six years, but they could never fit it into their previous work. 
Lars talked about it in an interview, saying, quote, I'd always looked at Enter Sandman and thought, what the fuck does that mean? Me being brought up in Denmark and not knowing a lot about this shit, I didn't get it. Then James clued me in. Apparently the Sandman is like the children's villain. The Sandman comes and rubs sand in your eyes if you don't go to sleep at night. So it's a fable. James has just given it a nice twist. Lars continuing on, saying, quote, It's this classic example of having something lingering around. People might say, is that because you can't come up with something new? No, not at all. Six years ago, I looked at Enter Sandman and thought, nah, let's write Metal Militia. Metal all the way, you know? Before the songwriting process, as James and Lars discussed the new direction they wanted to take Metallica with this new upcoming album, they knew they couldn't just leave it at simply making shorter, more commercial-type songs. They also wanted to mix the record differently. And Justice For All was noted for its dry and sterile production sound, the bass guitar is nearly inaudible, and the guitars sound almost mechanistic. James and Lars had producing credits for the album, and in hindsight, maybe it was a case of too many cooks in the kitchen, and maybe mixing not really being their forte in the first place. As James would later say, you can absolutely tell who was producing and mixing the thing. The drums were really loud, and the guitars were really loud. Lars talked about how that was fresh in their mind in the lead-up to writing the Black Album, saying, quote, We'd never really liked the mixing on Justice, Master of Puppets, or Lightning. So we were thinking, who can we get in to do the mixing? We felt it was time to make a record with a huge, big, fat low end, and the best-sounding record like that in the last couple of years was Dr. Feelgood. So we told our manager, call this guy and see if he wants to mix the record. This guy was Bob Rock, a former small-time musician who'd since hit it big as producer. His specialty was rambunctious pop rock, which sounded fantastic pumping from a car radio. He turned the trick for Bon Jovi and Aerosmith, and it made Motley Crue sound like the world's greatest bar band. Rock was a perfectionist whose ear for music was a lot more finely tuned than some of his work suggested. Rock had received Metallica's proposal to mix their record, but he was caught in between another proposal to produce a solo album from Bon Jovi's guitarist, Richie Sambora, at the time. He'd booked a vacation with his family and took off on a driving tour of the Grand Canyon, still torn between the two projects. As he drove his family along one of Arizona's dusty, deserted highways, he came across a Native American kid by the side of the road, miles from anywhere. Rock was amazed to see that he was wearing a Metallica t-shirt. Later, he pulled in for gas at a desert filling station. A Metallica tune was playing on the radio. He thought, that's weird. Metallica was never on the radio. For Rock, he'd later say there were too many signs he couldn't ignore. Rock got back to Metallica's management and said he wasn't interested in mixing the Metallica album. He wanted to produce it. James and Lars weren't expecting that response. They were prepared to produce the Black Album alone themselves. Their attitude was, we're Metallica. No one fucks with their shit and tells us what to do. But that offer came at a vulnerable time for the band, as they looked to get out of their comfort zone to steer the band into a more commercial sound. What was more commercial at the time than Motley Crue's Dr. Feelgood? James and Lars flew to Canada to meet with the producer at his home in Vancouver. They told him that they really loved the vibe of their live shows and that they wanted to capture it in the studio. As a set of foreshadowing for their studio experience, Rock was brutally honest with them and didn't pull any punches. He told Lars and James they had seen them play live a bunch of times, agreeing that they had a great live sound, but telling them straight up they had failed to capture that sound on any of their records so far. Lars and James were initially taken aback, but talked it through, agreeing they shouldn't be so stubborn and maybe see where this partnership could take them. 
Their attention then turned to how their diehard metalhead fans would perceive the move. But that's exactly the trap they didn't want to fall into with the Black Album. A producer isn't meant to make you sound like them. They're meant to make you sound like the best version of yourself that you can possibly be. Lars and James were more interested in the way he'd made those bands sound rather than the music those bands had made with them. And so they both agreed Bob was on board to be their next producer. Although Enter Sandman was the first demo laid down in August of 1990, and the title was already figured out, more than seven months would pass before James sat down with a pen and a pad to hammer out the lyrics, actually the last of all the Black Album tracks. With the Enter Sandman phrase in his mind, James came into the studio with these lyrics about a baby dying in a crib, Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. The baby's lying there, and the Sandman comes in at night and kills it. The off-to-never-never-land lyric was originally Disrupt the Perfect Family. But the guy they had brought into the studio to give them a new set of ears, a new perspective to take Metallica to that next level, had a different opinion on the lyrics. Bob was straight up with James and called the subject matter too heavy, too gruesome to be accessible. Plus, it didn't have any real meaning to the band. The vibe of the lyrics didn't fit the mood of the music. At the time, Metallica had this rule. Nobody could comment on anybody else's stuff. Kirk stayed in the guitar lane, Lars wasn't allowed to change James' lyrics, as James wasn't allowed to suggest different drum fills. They prided themselves on staying in their lane. Nobody had ever talked to James about his lyrics before, and so it was quite uncomfortable. Bob later talked about that moment in the studio, saying, quote, I just said you're selling the song short. It's so easy to just go to simple stuff like that, but it's harder to come up with something good that means something. I think that was the beginning of trying to give James the confidence to reach for more. It was a tough blow to James's ego, as he later said, quote, That pissed me off so much. I was like, fuck you, I'm the writer here. But that was the first challenge from someone else, and it made me work harder. For the first time in his life, James found himself rewriting verses and sharpening up choruses. In particular, Rock worked hard on getting into the singer's head that it was easier and better to use one word where previously he'd been used to using several. Single words could be broken down into syllables that sufficed for entire lines in a song, as with the chorus in Enter Sandman. The lines Enter Night, Exit Light were replacement lines using the syllables to stretch and tease the melody out of them. Hetfield swallowed his annoyance and rewrote the lyrics for most of the song a couple weeks after that initial gut punch from Bob. James reframed it as a kind of twisted lullaby that drew on child's fears, real and imagined, with James saying, quote, I wanted more of the mental thing where this kid gets manipulated by what adults say. And you know when you wake up with that shit in your eye that's supposedly been put in there by the Sandman to make you dream? So the guy in the song tells this little kid that, and he kind of freaks. He can't sleep after that, and it works the opposite way. Instead of a soothing thing, the table's turned. And so after one of the most memorable intros to any song, building everything up with a guitar riff and the tom-tom drums, the first verse depicts the familiar scene of a parent putting their child to bed with the lyrics, Say your prayers, little one, don't forget my son, to include everyone. I tuck you in, warm within, keep you free from sin, till the Sandman he comes. The pre-chorus and then chorus taken at face value and out of context almost sounds warm and welcoming, but Hetfield's delivery, along with the overall sound of Metallica, reflect something more sinister, like the Sandman has an evil intention. Sleep with one eye open, gripping your pillow tight. Exit light, enter night. Take my hand, we're off to Never Never Land. 
Never Never Land, of course, the fictional home to Peter Pan, which represents a childhood innocence. But the way James sings, it sounds like a sinister place, like the Sandman is taking the kid to the nightmare version of Peter Pan's Land of Dreams. The second verse confirms that feeling further. Something's wrong, shut the light, heavy thoughts tonight, and they aren't of Snow White. Dreams of war, dreams of liars, dreams of dragon's fire, and of things that will bite. In the bridge, they do a spin on the old Now I Lay Me Down to Sleep lullaby. James speaks the lullaby with the voice of the child repeating everything he says. What's originally meant as a prayer to give a child comfort before bed, then spins into the second part of the bridge, where James plays on another old classic children's song, again singing it in a sinister sort of way. Hush, little baby, don't say a word, and never mind that noise you heard. It's just the beast under your bed, in your closet, in your head. For the guitar solo, Kirk Hammett wrote it in the mindset of one of his heroes, thinking if Brian Robertson from Thin Lizzy played on the song, what would he play? For the guitar lick before the breakdown, Kirk was inspired indirectly by Magic Man by Hart. But it didn't come from Hart's version, it came from a cutoff Ice T's Power album, where he sampled Magic Man. Although Bob Rock had a large influence on how Inner Sandman came to be, not everything he suggested made it past Hetfield and Ulrich. As the album was wrapped up and it was time to decide on the first single, the producer wasn't convinced that the completed Enter Sandman was an obvious hit, preferring the thrashier Holier Than Thou as the album's first single. This time, Lars intervened, holding firm in his belief that the track was the perfect way to launch what he knew would be Metallica's most important album. And so it proved. Released on July 29, 1991, Enter Sandman reached number 16 in the US and number 5 in the UK. It was helped in part by the music video, which followed the song's theme, showing images of children having nightmares with shots of the band singing the song. Enter Sandman was Metallica's biggest hit of their career thus far, yet it meant much more than that. As Lars intuited, it was the perfect jumping off point for the next stage of their career teeing up the Black Album just under two months later. Enter Sandman, overexposed as it might be, is still commercial heavy metal at its finest. Lars would say years later, quote, I felt it was a great intro to our headspace of 1990 and 91. In terms of sales, it started the project off rather well. We still refer to it as the song that keeps the pool heated at a comfortable 88, and we love it for that. I can't say I get sick of playing it. It still works for me. When Metallica hired on Bob Rock as their new producer, it looked like a simple formula that could work. These four guys getting out of their comfort zone, bringing in this hair metal hits maker outsider for a fresh set of eyes and ears. Where it brought them to was a place where James, who had once written Kill Bon Jovi on his guitar, was now ready to spend months in the studio with one of the chief architects behind Bon Jovi's biggest hits. The place where Motley Crue, leaders of the self-same scene Metallica had originally fled LA to escape, had made their biggest selling album. What they hadn't bargained for was how hard rock would make them work for their money. If you've ever watched the documentary A Year and a Half in the Life of Metallica, you know that the making of the Black Album was a tense and contentious affair. Bob basically insisted Lars simply wasn't up to the job as a drummer and told him to take lessons. A room at the studio was set aside for Lars to spend several hours a day practicing, relearning techniques to adapt to the style of the sessions. 
Even when he had nailed the essential purity that he and Rock were searching for, the perfectionist producer was still insisting of upwards of 40 takes for every song. You gotta give Lars a lot of credit for simplifying his drum style on the album. He's naturally a very reactive type drummer, someone in the vein of Keith Moon of The Who, and the heavy metal community takes a shine to that more intricate, show-off style of drumming. But Bob pushed him to be a simple, backbeat, keep-the-time type of drummer. Just compare something like Dyer's Eve off and Justice for All to really anything off the Black Album. But Bob wasn't just hard on Lars. As Kirk struggled to put down the Unforgiven solo, for example, you can see Bob goading over his performance, teasing his past accolades, saying, Okay, cut to the chase and fucking play it. Let's hear the Guitar Player of the Year's fucking solo. But of course, it went both ways. Bob was also fighting the band's reluctance to relinquish all their past habits, and also their natural tendencies to bait him and to test his worth. Bob would call James Dr. No, saying, quote, Whenever I was about to make a suggestion that seemed even a little off the wall, he'd say no before I'd even finish the first sentence. James would say, quote, We really put him through the ringer, and he survived. We were testing each other and shit, making sure that this guy can drive the Metallica train. The studio video footage shows James gleefully finding a picture of Rock on an old album, looking like a hair metal hero, James laughing, saying, quote, Look, man, Bob used to be a woman. A part of all the contention was Bob's producing style, recording live performances with everyone in a room together, as opposed to the more common overdubs style. It meant a lot of long hours playing the songs over and over again. Bob learned his producing ropes from his mentor, Bruce Fairbarn. As an engineer working alongside Bruce, they did Bon Jovi's Slippery When Wet, as well as Aerosmith's Permanent Vacation. Bruce became Bob's mentor of sorts, as Bob witnessed his no-bullshit, in-focus, demanding style, all in service of making sure the conditions were perfect to let the creativity happen. Bob had a front-row seat for what it took to make hit records, as he later said, quote, the one thing I really got from him was really about concentrating on the performance end of it rather than a perfectionism kind of thing, which may sound bizarre coming from me, but that's what I really try and concentrate on. I really try to facilitate musicians to be comfortable and really fill in the blanks when it comes to their needs to get what they want accomplished. Or as Motley Crue bassist and band leader Nikki Six later recalled of his time working with Rock, Bob whipped us like galley slaves. Part of Bruce and Bob's history together was that most of their records, both together and separate, was done at a Vancouver, BC studio called Little Mountain. For Metallica, that was not an option. They were insistent on recording in LA. Lars would later say it was that detail that initially hindered the possibility of their partnership, saying, quote, For a while, I didn't think it was going to work out. Bob's got a big family, and he wasn't that keen on coming to LA. Then when we played him the stuff, I could see his eyes light up. We built a little 8-track studio in my house and made some rough demos, just me on drums and James. The clincher was when they played him the rough demo of an epic new track called Sad But True. Lars continued on saying, quote, It was like boom. From there, it was pretty much a done deal. The straw that broke the camel's back for Bob's decision, Sad But True, was released as the album's fifth and final single in February of 93. Bob was awestruck with the demo's juddering rhythm and power. He immediately called it destined for greatness, telling Lars and James he thought it could be Led Zeppelin's cashmere for the 90s. And once they got in the studio, it was a prime example of how Bob's method of recording everyone together as a band, live, really elevated the track. 
Kirk recalled the energy being very intense playing Sad But True together with everyone so locked into the groove and the attitude of the song. Despite that, Sad But True was originally written in a higher key, and as a result, wasn't nearly as heavy as it could have been. Bob brought it up to the band in pre-production, noticing how every demo was in the key of E, as Bob would say in a later interview, saying, quote, They said, well, isn't E the lowest note? So I told them that on Motley Crue's Dr. Feelgood, which I produced and Metallica loved, the band had tuned down to D. Metallica then tuned down to D, and that's when the riff really became huge. It was this force that you just couldn't stop no matter what. Influenced by the 1978 horror film Magic, starring Anthony Hopkins, Sad But True is about a person's darker side taking control. The song is a monologue in the perspective of a devil-on-your-shoulder type character, justifying the existence of this darker side, which in the film is symbolized by a foul-mouthed ventriloquist's dummy. The song opens up with that inner voice demanding the main character's attention, initially declaring its existence and importance, but later manipulating the character by subverting the relationships with other people around him. Hey, I'm your life, I'm the one who takes you there. Hey, I'm your life, I'm the one who cares. They, they betray, I'm your only true friend now. They, they'll betray, I'm forever there. In the song, this voice is non-specific, but could easily describe addiction, a struggle James has since been open about with numerous rehab stints for alcohol and other addictions. The study of addiction has shown that addicts respond to the prescriptions of a destructive thought process known as the critical inner voice. In the chorus of Sad But True, the darker side is stating its case that no matter what the person does, they will always exist within them and have control. Just like addiction, they can make it idle, but it can never be extinguished. I'm your dream, make you real. I'm your eyes when you must steal. I'm your pain when you can't feel. Sad But True. I'm your dream, mind astray, I'm your eyes while you're away, I'm your pain while you repay, you know it's sad but true. Although it's likely about addiction, sad but true's ambiguity is part of its genius. It's vague enough to also describe other types of desire and drive, including the quest for power or controlling one's anger, which is another thing James has admitted to struggling with. The artist Pushhead, aka Brian Schrader, created the sleeve art for the single, which is an image of two skulls looking at each other. When James saw the artwork, it made him hear the song differently. He looked back on it in 2012, saying how it was a reflection of himself at the time and how he felt, saying, quote, I had no idea the duality was so blatant in that song. He picked up on that, good and evil, the secret me and the public me. I'm glad I'm a little more transparent than I think I am. People have helped me more because of that. One of the many great leaps Bob Rock helped Metallica make with a black album came in the lyrics. He not only pushed James to get more simpler and more poetic with tracks like Inner Sandman, but he pushed really hard for James to write more personal. It's something James had never really done before. He'd always written about topics outside himself. He never did the singer-songwriter cliché of looking within, as Bob suggested he now do. It meant getting a lot further out of James's comfort zone and away from something they had been praised for in the past. Despite the extreme nature of the noise they made, Metallica had always stood above many of their contemporaries in thrash metal due to their lyrics. Compared to Anthrax and Slayer and old hands like Iron Maiden, Metallica got a little more shine in the mainstream. They got nominated for Grammy Awards. The video for one, their first, was a staple on MTV. Lars had a theory, saying, quote, 
I think a lot of it has to do with our approach lyrically and about wanting to confront issues that were more realistic and had more to do with things that were happening around us. James's lyrics are just different from all the cliched crap that most metal bands spew out. I mean, I'm the first one to line up for a Slayer record when it comes out, because I think Slayer are the absolute best of what they do, but lyrically, it's a whole different kettle of fish. Lars continuing on saying, quote, We've always been very adamant about shying away from the metal cliches, the whole sexist, satanist crap, and as a consequence, it seems all the trend-setting journalists have been throwing acclaim at Metallica right, left, and center, not doing a video, and then finally doing one, and everybody going, wow. But a part of the agreed new musical direction with the Black Album also meant James leaving that old lyric style in the past. James talked about that in an interview, saying, quote, It just got a little too easy to keep writing lyrics like the Justice shit. It's too easy to watch the news and write a fucking tune about what you saw. Writing shit from within is a lot harder than writing the political shit. But once it's out, it feels a lot easier to put your weight behind, especially live. Lars would add, quote, The earlier records were about brute force, stuff like that. As James became more comfortable, elements of vulnerability and confusion came across with less banging on the chest type of stuff. Instead of it's fucked up and I'm going to kill everything in my wake, it was more like it's fucked up and I'm really suffering from it. For the first time, James was vulnerable in his lyrics, and for a songwriter looking to find content to extract from, James's backstory was a goldmine. James's public image of a lone wolf, the beer-sucking, death-head hard case, was misleading. Those who know James best confirm he has a sensitive side, he could be an emotional character, and was certainly not immune to criticism. Metallica represented his escape from a childhood that had left him feeling alienated from most of society. He was born in the Los Angeles suburb of Downey on August 3, 1963, and raised as a Christian scientist by his parents. Christian science was the belief that God would heal the body as it was just a vessel for the soul. Thus, all medical treatment and study of human biology was shunned. He later talked about being forced into the religious belief at a young age, saying, quote, It was very alienating for me as a child being raised in the religion, how I couldn't attend certain health classes in school. You know, when you're in elementary school, you'd want to be hanging out with your buddies. They'd get their health books out, and all of a sudden, I wasn't supposed to learn about the body. This is just a shell for your soul. You don't need to go to the doctor because God will fix whatever ails you. I had to get up and leave class and there's all this whispering, how come you have to leave class? And I'd go into this whole explanation about the religion and when you're seven years old, you don't want to do that. You're on the football team and you get exempted from part of your physical. It didn't make me feel part of this earth. It was those feelings James channeled and articulated on the Black Album with the song The God That Failed. It was written about James's mother and her refusal of cancer treatment because of her Christian science beliefs. When she was diagnosed, the only help she would take was in the form of prayer, and she ultimately died. His father had already left the family a few years prior, leaving James without either parent by the age of 16. Even just reading the lyrics, you can feel the anger and frustration in James as he directs the words towards his mother. The song opens with, Pride you took... Pride you feel, pride that you felt when you'd kneel. Not the word, not the love, not what you thought from above. In the pre-chorus and chorus, James sings about religion in general, how it tells people what to believe in, even if it contradicts reality and science. It feeds, it grows, it clouds all you will know. Deceit, deceive, 
decide just what you believe. I see faith in your eyes, never you hear the discouraging lies. I hear faith in your cries. Broken is the promise, betrayal, the healing hand held back by the deepened nail. Follow the God that failed. James clearly feels betrayed by what he was told growing up, that if you pray and have faith, God will heal you. And what a great line, the healing hand held back by the deepened nail, with the Christian imagery and Metallica intensity all mixed in. James would later comment on the line, saying it sounded very grown up for someone who was so angry at the time. He reflected on the song as a whole in 2012, saying, quote, I've made a lot of peace with my upbringing and religion and all that, and I know why it happened and how it had to happen, and I've come to terms with it all. When I was writing that song, I was in the throes of hatred around it, in upheaval of some unpleasant childhood stuff. I know what my higher power is all about, and I know now what my parents' idea of a higher power was all about. So I'm able to leave their stuff with them and take my stuff where I need to claim it. I'm able to move on with that, and this song is pretty damn heavy. Bob deserves a lot of credit for pushing James to be that vulnerable, especially after a decade of writing in such a different lyrical style. It had to be tough for James, but it also had to do with the intentional simplicity of these new batch of songs. When you write in slower tempos and you're not trying to throw every little thrash guitar riff and double kick drums in every break, the songs leave a lot of room for melody and more focus on the vocals. In an interview, James talked about that focus being a little daunting when putting pen to pad, but ultimately led to better songs, saying, quote, I'm not the kind of guy who will sit down and read novels or read poetry, and I don't write nice little poems. I'm not like a Phil Lynott, who's one of my all-time favorite songwriters. He would sit down and write poetry. I just don't do that. The only way is to go inward and a little bit more universal, things that touch everyone. You can't go wrong with that, talking about your own feelings and a little less about the outside world. James was more specific in The God That Failed, but there's another track on the album that takes up where The God That Failed left off. It would be the album's second single, and another example of the leaps James made in his songwriting. It's titled The Unforgiven. Although similar in subject matter to The God That Failed, inspired by his experience of growing up as a Christian scientist, The Unforgiven is much more vague in its criticism and maybe more relatable. James takes aim at collectivism, the idea that the individual should be subjugated by the group. The song deals with something he felt a lot of as a child, the theme of forced conformity. The first verse opens in an almost story-like fashion, describing the discoveries of a child as he grows up with a lack of freedom. New blood joins this earth, and quickly he's subdued. Through constant pain disgrace, the young boy learns the rules. With time, the child draws in, this whipping boy done wrong. Deprived of all his thoughts, the young man struggles on and on. The chorus then reflects how this forced collectivism in society leads to unfulfilled potential. He's always pushed aside what he feels is true in his heart, his uniqueness, due to his fear of the punishments that society would bring to him if he did so. With, What I've felt, what I've known, never shine through in what I've shown. Never be, never see won't see what might have been. He has to act hypocritically on the outside to avoid ridicule by society. It's sad, but in the early part of the song, the man, still young, sheds some hope and decides to make a pact with himself that he'll remain independent and free at heart. He'll fight the conformity for as long as he lives. With the pre-chorus, he's known a vow unto his own that never from this day 
his will they'll take away. But as the song moves into the second verse, the boy is now a man, much older and seemingly beaten down and apathetic to it all. They dedicate their lives to running all of his. He tries to please them all, this bitter man he is. Throughout his life, the same, he's battled constantly. This fight he cannot win, a tired man they see no longer cares. It then ends with a bit of a revelation. The character suddenly becomes first person, told by the man on a reflection of his life, with the old man then prepares to die regretfully, that old man here is me. His vow to maintain his own will in spite of the controlling environment has failed. It's depressing, but clearly a snapshot of how James viewed his own childhood, feeling deprived of all his own thoughts as soon as he was born and forced to learn and follow the rules of this religion. The end of the chorus is repeated numerous times throughout the song, reflecting its depressing nature. What I've felt, what I've known, never shine through in what I've shown. Never free, never me, so I dub thee unforgiven. James felt so strongly about the theme of forgiveness in the track that he revisited it for two sequels, The Unforgiven Part 2 on 1997's Reload and Part 3 on 2008's Death Magnetic. In 2012, James talked about how deep-seated this pain from his childhood was in him, it doesn't just go away, but maturing as a person and looking at it from a new lens after all these years helps. He explained, quote, Maybe it's not done. Maybe I didn't feel forgiven or wasn't able to forgive. It's one of those songs to me that is pretty personal, obviously revolving around forgiveness of the world and self and whatever else you have some resentment against, working through that. The melody itself never went away in my head. It's potent for me, and lyrically, stuff kept coming along with it, and probably the fact that you're not supposed to do a trilogy or something or keep writing the same thing onto the next album. I think after The Unforgiven 3, we're kind of done with it. I think I'm able to forgive, forgive myself, and move on. Musically, Metallica wanted to turn their usual go-to writing approach on its head and use The Unforgiven as its test dummy. Instead of the standard melodic verse and heavy chorus, as evidenced on their previous ballads, Fade to Black, Welcome Home Sanitarium, and One, the band opted to reverse the dynamic with heavy, distorted verses and a softer, melodic chorus, played with undistorted electric and acoustic guitars. The softer chorus helps the build-up to one of the most powerful guitar solos on the record, and really one of the most moving guitar solos in rock history. I mentioned Bob teasing Kirk as he struggled to find the solo referencing his past awards, telling him, cut to the chase and fucking play it. Let's hear the guitar player of the year's fucking solo. Kirk had an early version of the solo worked out, but Bob called it too bluesy and too pretty. In the year and a half documentary, Lars can be seen cringing on the studio sofa while Bob is yelling and trying to get the best out of Kirk as he does take after take. Throughout the Black Album, Rock found that Kirk was a guitarist who needed to be pushed hard to produce his best saying he was a marvelously skillful player, electrically fast, but you just needed to focus his brilliance and provoke some fire. The final Unforgiven guitar solo was eventually put together from over a dozen performances, with Kirk calling the resulting work one of his favorite solos on the album. The Unforgiven was a musical evolution for a band that, until this album, had written almost exclusively in the fast-paced, aggressive thrash metal style. Not only is James getting out of his comfort zone writing deep, reflective, and intimate lyrics, he's also stretching himself with his vocal performance. At this point in Metallica's career, James had made a name for himself with his primal thrash metal yell. 
You get that during Unforgiven's verses, but the chorus is where you hear a more nuanced and wide-ranging rock vocal. When deciding to make the leap for the Black Album, James looked to Chris Isaac, particularly his song Wicked Game, which was a massive early 90s hit. According to Bob, James was enamored by Isaac's vocals and asked Bob to guide him in getting somewhere close to it. In the past, James had always doubled his vocals. He didn't sing harmonies per se, he just sang the same thing on another track. But as Bob explained, the process of doubling doesn't give you a character, really. In fact, a lot of times it takes character away because you're hoping that the second vocal gives you the depth that your first vocal should have. In an interview, Bob talked about the guidance he gave James, saying, quote, What you hear in Chris Isaac's voice is the nuances when he sings. He isn't doubled. He's actually performing. You perform. We set it up so he was comfortable and had a great vocal sound, and then he sang. Every day he got better, and he got comfortable with it. He became a great singer. Bob is also partly responsible for how easily James's vocal style would become parodied. Bob loves the vocal improvisations, the yaz or the babies, to end certain lines or to kick off new sections of a song. They don't mean much, but add a dynamic to the songs. James just so happened to dive headfirst into the improvs, and with his spin on it, one now only needs to say one growling word to imitate a James Hetfield vocal. Pardon my impression. Yeah! Yeah. But what do they say? Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. Dave Mustaine, who was fired from Metallica in the band's early days, formed Megadeth and swore off listening to his former bandmates out of bitterness. But he called The Unforgiven the one song that got him to start listening to Metallica again. Dave liked it because it was the first time he heard James push himself to really sing. Unforgiven's intro was taken from the score of a Western movie and reversed so it would not be identifiable. They've never revealed the movie for legal reasons, but it's probably the 1965 Clint Eastwood movie for a few dollars more. At the heart of Metallica is the bond between James and Lars. They first met in Los Angeles in 1981, sharing a love of underground speed metal and alcohol. Lars had placed an ad in the LA newspaper The Recycler, which read, Drummer looking for other metal musicians to jam with. Tigers of Pantang, Diamond Head, and Iron Maiden. James answered the ad, and five months later, they were playing in James's living room with a prototype version of Metallica that included guitarist Dave Mustaine. Lars was born in Denmark. His father, a professional tennis player, brought the family to LA to facilitate Lars as a young tennis prodigy himself. He was an only child. His godfather was jazz great Dexter Gordon. He traveled widely, bought tons of albums, and talked constantly. James Hetfield was born near LA and had a rough childhood within the Christian scientist belief system. He couldn't afford to buy many records, and instead of doing much talking, he played guitar. In the beginning, Metallica was about nothing more sophisticated than curing classic teenage angst. The band, says Lars, was basically a means of escape from, quote, these fucking day jobs that were pissing us off and from the suck-shit heavy metal scene in LA. Success, at least the platinum kind, was not part of the plan. The band name came from a friend of Lars who was brainstorming names for a fanzine and was considering Metal Mania or Metallica. After hearing the two names, Lars suggested he use Metal Mania so he could steal Metallica for himself. On the local level, the band was an instant smash. Metallica quickly became the toast of the speed metal fraternity on the strength of a 1982 demo tape, No Life to Leather. There was some early lineup calamity with hothead lead guitarist Dave Mustaine. He pissed off the other guys during their live shows, namely James, acting like he was the frontman. 
plus he wasn't able to handle his drugs and alcohol intake. They quickly kicked him out, replacing him that same day with Exodus guitarist and San Francisco native Kirk Hammett. By mid-1983, Metallica's lineup had solidified after recruiting trauma bassist Cliff Burton. Lars was on drums and did virtually all their business dealings, James on rhythm guitar and singing, well, more like grunting at this point, and Kirk Hammett on lead guitar. By the time their debut album Kill 'Em All was released, the band had relocated to San Francisco, and the name Metallica was synonymous with the finest in thrash. Their second studio album, Ride the Lightning, was released a year later, climbing to 100 on the Billboard chart. Their third, 1986's Master of Puppets, reached number 29 and was Metallica's first gold record. That same year, Burton was killed in a tragic tour bus accident in Sweden. But the band soldiered on, recruiting Flotsam and Jetsam's bassist Jason Newstead and roaring back into action with Injustice for All. It reached number 6 on the Billboard 200 and was certified platinum after only 9 weeks. According to Lars, Metallica's mid-80s progression from the linear thrash of Kill 'Em All to the torturous arrangements of Justice was in part a product of the group's own musical insecurity, saying, quote, We were freaking out about how quick things happened for us. It's not like we had five years of paying our dues on the club circuit. There we were, playing cover songs, writing our own songs, and all of a sudden, we were touring America, making a record. And we were 19 years old, thrown in at the deep end. We felt inadequate as musicians and as songwriters. That made us go too far, around Master of Puppets and Justice, in the direction of trying to prove ourselves. We do all this weird-ass shit sideways to prove that we are capable musicians and songwriters. James would later agree with Lars on the proggy excess direction they were headed in, saying, quote, To me, the Injustice for All album sounds horrible, awful, can't fucking stand it. That was our fancy stage, showing off too much. And so 1991 marked the 10-year anniversary of Metallica's existence, an eternity when you think of the average lifespan of a band, especially because of the refusal to make videos and play the so-called game that other bands play for cheap promotion. Metallica were road warriors throughout the 80s. They needed to get to live audiences to spread their music, and it's not like mainstream radio was clamoring for speed metal either. It had been 10 years in the trenches, cooped up in tour vans, driving place to place, playing sweaty venues across the world. A decade marked a perfect time for Metallica to reflect, to pay tribute to the adversity they had overcome, and to the road warrior lifestyle they had become accustomed to. And that's exactly what they did on the Black Album's fourth single, released more than a year after the album, Wherever I May Roam. Wherever I May Roam tells the story of a drifter who walks the earth and is perfectly content doing just that. The song is an epic seven-minute testament to life on the open road, beautifully portraying a theme of proud self-sufficiency. It opens with, And the road becomes my bride, I have stripped of all but pride. So in her I do confide, and she keeps me satisfied, gives me all I need. And with dust and throat I crave, only knowledge will I save. To the game you stay a slave, roamer, wanderer, nomad, vagabond, call me what you will. It's the classic story of the hero's journey, touching on the romantic side of us that longs for adventure. James writes about a person living for himself, not dependent on others. He also touches on some of the themes in The Unforgiven, of being in the game you stay a slave. It's almost like James is telling us his childhood of being told what to do all the time has led to this ultimate rebellion. He counts himself lucky he escaped from forced compliance, as he'd write later in Wherever I May Roam, his ties are severed clean, he's light on his feet, 
The less he has now, the more he gains. In the chorus, he writes, But I'll take my time anywhere, free to speak my mind anywhere, and I'll redefine anywhere, anywhere I roam, where I lay my head is home. It's like the common saying, a rolling stone gathers no moss. Someone who's always traveling and not succumbing to one lifestyle has the advantage of less responsibilities and burdens. When James and Lars recorded the demo in that little studio in Lars's home, James had quickly found a vocal melody to accompany it. Just like Enter Sandman and most of the Black Album, James would wait until they got in the studio to write lyrics. So in Lou, during the demo process, James would record a guide vocal take of him just wailing the melody in random noises. This would come as a surprise and later a boon to Bob, as they'd have to wait around in the studio for James to finish his lyrics that would fit the almost completed songs, syllable by syllable if necessary. And Justice for All marked the debut of Metallica's new bass player Jason Newstead, but it wasn't exactly a big coming out party. As I mentioned, James and Lars had most of the input into the final mixing of End Justice for All, and it's since become infamous for its lack of bass sound. Later, when James was asked if Jason was even on the album, he jokingly replied, well, his picture's on it. Jason was the new kid on the block with huge shoes to fill after Cliff Burton's death. He was hazed unmercifully by the other guys, but his thick skin, his wild and animated onstage presence, and his tight professional bass playing had him embraced by Metallica's fans quickly. As recording for the Black Album began, four years had passed since Jason joined, and their new musical philosophy gave Jason a chance to make his mark on a studio album for the first time. And he did so with My Friend of Misery, the album's 11th track. It was one of only three songs on the album giving Jason a writing credit, and right from the get-go, you hear Jason's stamp and the big change from their old sound. The song opens with just bass by itself, something previously unheard of in the Metallica realm. Jason would later talk about the track, saying, quote, That was a moment where those guys kind of bowed and said, Here you go, man, put your song on there. Being the guy who came up with that. As opposed to being part of the team, I got to be myself for a minute there, which was a real accomplishment. My Friend of Misery was originally supposed to be the album's instrumental, following the tradition from all previous Metallica albums, but James felt vocals really boosted the track to another level. James critiques people who view life as an endless tragedy and who seem to think that every problem in the world is theirs to bear and solve. With the chorus, you insist that the weight of the world should be on your shoulders. Followed by, there's much more to life than what you see, my friend of misery. The bullying may have subsided now the band was off the road, but Jason's part in the creative process was still extremely limited. Metallica is very much James and Lars's band, James doing the lyrics and most of the music, with Lars doing the song arrangements and most of the business stuff. Jason hoped this would change as time passed and his role in the creative process would grow, but that didn't prove to be the case. He would end up leaving Metallica in 2001, just before they went into the studio for the Saint Anger album. There's a distinct individualistic theme to the Black Album. The lone self-sufficient drifter on Wherever I May Roam, or The Unforgiven, where they take aim at the idea of one person being subjugated to the will of the group. The album's third track, Holier Than Thou, describes people who get a sense of satisfaction from putting down others rather than from achieving things for themselves. The cover art of the album might be the biggest clue to its theme. Although the album is officially self-titled, it's universally referred to as the Black Album. It's almost completely blacked out, save for two graphics if you look a little closer, the band's logo and a coiled snake. 
The snake is from the Gadsden flag, a symbol with origins in the American Revolution, obviously with a theme of individual rights and opposition to a tyrannical government. The idea to black out the cover came from Lars as a reaction to what metal bands were traditionally doing with their covers. It was one of their first days in the studio and he was browsing through a heavy metal magazine, noticing how the ads for various albums all looked the same. They all had these dark cartoon characters and they all featured steel, blood, and guts. The end result became like a photo negative of the Beatles' White Album, which itself was actually titled The Beatles, but renamed by fans after its similarly featureless all-white cover. Metallica risked mockery, though, with a comedy mockumentary movie Spinal Tap, released seven years earlier, featuring a scene where the band discovers their new album is simply just black. The famous line in it, It's like, how much more black could this be? And the answer is none, none more black. But the guys in Metallica didn't care, as James would put it, here it is, black sleeve, black logo, fuck you. And maybe another example of Metallica's push for a more commercial release, the album was in its title simply just Metallica, eponymous titles being every major record label's preferred option, uncontroversial, uncomplicated, and easy to remember. It was ironic then that the album would quickly become known not by that name, but for the nickname given to it by fans. The snake from the Gadsden flag is not only referenced on the cover, but on one of the songs on the album, the sixth track, titled Don't Tread On Me. On the official Gadsden flag, Don't Tread On Me is the motto, with a lettering featured underneath the snake. In the Year in the Life documentary, you actually see the flag hung in the studio for the recording sessions. This song is overt in its American patriotism. James has described it as just one of those don't fuck with us songs. Don't Tread on Me is really a reaction to what James would feel in hindsight was the overzealous anti-American tone of And Justice For All, in particular its biggest hit, One. One was written as an anti-war song that portrays a World War I soldier severely wounded from a landmine begging God to take his life. Critics praised James for his unflinching psychological portrayal of the war veteran, but some people interpreted it as anti-American, ungrateful of the place they live in, and acting like a bunch of complainers. That critique irked James, as he'd later comment when talking about Don't Tread on Me, saying, quote, This is the other side of that. America is a fucking good place. I definitely think that, and that feeling came about from touring a lot. You find out what you like about certain places, and you find out why you live in America. Even with all the bad fucked up shit, it's still the most happening place to hang out. The lyrics on Don't Tread on Me reference Patrick Henry's famous Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death speech and mirror a powerful metaphor offered by Benjamin Franklin in a 1775 letter. In it, he likened America's vigilance and defense of individual rights to a timber rattlesnake, writing, She never begins an attack, nor, when once engaged, ever surrenders. Or as Metallica put it on Don't Tread on Me, Liberty or death, what we so proudly hail. Once you provoke her, rattling of her tail. Never begins it, never, but once engaged, never surrenders, showing the fangs of rage. The chorus reflecting a great irony and widely held right-wing belief that to have peace, you have to be prepared to go to war at any time. Mutually assured destruction, to put it in another term. So be it, threaten no more. To secure peace is to prepare for war. So be it, settle the score. Touch me again for the words that you will hear evermore. Don't tread on me. To bring an even more revolution tinge to the song, the melody played by Kirk at the beginning before the main riff starts is actually a guitar rendition of the song America from the musical West Side Story. 
With Metallica stepping from one side of the political aisle in one to the other with Don't Tread on Me, the song was met with its fair share of controversy, but mostly because of the timing in its release. America had invaded Kuwait in August of 1990 and had been heavily involved in the Gulf War early by 91. In hindsight, it looks like Metallica was responding as a pro-war band with the Black Albums released August of 91, when in fact James had written Don't Tread on Me months before the invasion of Kuwait. James has said they're not anti-war, they're not pro-war, they're not trying to stand on any side of the political aisle, they're just writing songs. Don't Tread on Me would result in the biggest controversy out of all the songs released on the Black Album, which actually shocked the members of Metallica. They were bracing for critics to attack another song off the album, something less serious on a political scale, but something they were worried might alienate and lose their diehard thrash metal fans they had built up for the last decade. But the most scathing example of the philosophy Metallica took with the sound of the Black Album, Metallica would cut a ballad, their first ever true ballad, with a symphony orchestra, of all else, written in response to James missing a girl? It's nothing else matters. James was on the phone to a friend one evening on the Justice Tour and was messing around on his acoustic guitar at the same time. He had been taking classical guitar lessons and was practicing this new finger-picking style. As he hit on a little melody picked out on the open bass strings, he quickly realized there was something there. He hung up immediately. James would flesh out the song during the rest of the tour, eventually recording a demo of it to cassette tape. When scouring the miles of tape for ideas for the next record, Lars came upon the delicate song. Immediately, it caught him off guard, and he was convinced Metallica should try record it. James, on the other hand, wasn't so sure, later saying, quote, I had no intentions of it being a Metallica song. It was a personal song for me. I didn't even think they'd like it. It was just me writing for me. Continuing on, saying, quote, At first, I didn't want to play it for the guys. I thought that Metallica could only be the four of us. These are songs about destroying things, headbanging, bleeding for the crowd, whatever it is, as long as it wasn't about chicks and fast cars, even though that's what we liked. The rest of the band loved it, but James was still clinging on to that old preconceived notion of the music Metallica made. They had written ballads of a sort before, dark melancholy songs punctuated with explosive guitars such as One and Fade to Black, but nothing like Nothing Else Matters. It was so heartfelt and personal to James, it took Lars endlessly gushing over how good it was to finally convince James it should go on the record. The candid admission of romance delivered with earnestness is a far cry from James's usual attack dog posture. Where the band's previous ballads had been written about the horrors of war, Nothing Else Matters was a candid breakthrough moment for James as a songwriter. It is, in short, a love song. But it's much more than that. It's about trusting your gut, believing in yourself, and sticking with the album's individualist theme, not caring what other people think. It opens with, So close, no matter how far. Couldn't be much more from the heart. Forever trusting who we are, no nothing else matters. In the second verse, James admits this vulnerability is a new territory for himself, while also bringing another character in the mix. Maybe it's his girlfriend he misses. Maybe it's his bandmates in Metallica as he reflects on the struggle they've experienced together to make it big. Never open myself this way. Life is ours. We live it our way. All these words I don't just say. And nothing else matters. In the third verse, James goes back to the theme of trust. He knows that this relationship will be good so long as the other person or other people are courageous enough to trust him through the change. Trust I seek and I find in you, every day for us something new, open mind for a different view, and nothing else matters. 
It could be a bad manifesto of where Metallica was at at the time. James asking for his bandmates to trust him as they change their musical direction and write more of what's in their heart. Maybe James had Lars in mind when writing it. The pair were and remain the heart of the band. When it comes to all major decisions, whether it's on the creative or business side, the buck stops at James and Lars. But it can be a love-hate union at times. The famous Some Kind of Monster documentary on the making of their St. Anger album gave an in-depth look at their relationship. Lars at one point screaming in James' face, yelling, Fuck! On the Year and a Half in the Life documentary, cameras caught an exchange in which Lars requests James to sing along as they run through a track. This despite James suffering through throat problems. James replying, If you want singing, sing it yourself. I don't ask you to drum if your arms dropped off. James reflected on that relationship years later, saying, quote, Lars and I have grown up together. It's like family. Music became kind of my best friend. It helped me through a lot of hard times. We love each other and hate each other. We're like brothers. Lars concurred, saying, quote, I've been with this guy over half my life. Sometimes I know what he's going to say before he says it. And there's an energy that comes out of friction that you can't exclude from any project. You can't help but think of that relationship when hearing nothing else matters. The bond between them at the heart of the band going through thick and thin but ultimately never losing the trust in each other and what people might think from the outside. In the chorus, James sings, Never cared for what they do, never cared for what they know, but I know. Overall, the message in Nothing Else Matters hits on two fronts, one being the strong bond between two people or a group of people, of which distance can't sever. The second is an encouragement to have faith in the relationship and ignoring the outside world. It's ironic in that it's like James is writing to himself about the song, of not being afraid of the vulnerability that comes with expressing your feelings. He talked about that in an interview, saying, quote, It was a song for myself in my room on tour when I was bumming out about being away from home. It's quite amazing. It's a true testament to honesty and exposing yourself, putting your real self out there and taking the risk, taking a gamble that someone's either going to step on your heart with spikes on or they're going to put their heart right next to it. And you never know until you try. That's solidified, I think, that we were doing the right thing, writing from the heart about what we felt, and you can't go wrong that way. The early version of Nothing Else Matters had all the emotional depth and fragility that made it great, but also kind of lacked a sense of enormity that would ultimately turn it into a stadium-filling anthem. For that, they could thank Bob, who suggested they add an orchestra for an extra touch of grandiosity. Award-winning composer Michael Kamen was given the task. He ended up recording a full orchestra along with the song, sent it back to the band, and awaited their feedback. Instead, Kamen heard nothing. The initial reaction from Metallica was negative. Although they were reaching out of their comfort zone with the Black Album, it was hard to lose their stubborn ways when it came to Bob suggesting anything too out of the ordinary. They initially had the same reaction for the subtle bed of cellos on The Unforgiven, and the sitar-like guitar intro to Wherever I May Roam. For those, the guys in Metallica would eventually be convinced. For the orchestra, nothing else matters, though, they reached a compromise. They would keep the orchestra in the final mix. However, they would bury it so it's hardly audible in most of the song. You hear it most in the soft part of the guitar solo. When the members of the Metallica family finally met Michael Kamen at the Grammys, long after the Black Album had gone multi-platinum, he introduced himself as the guy that did the charts for Nothing Else Matters. All the guys responded cordially and told Kamen they loved it. But that response kind of confused Kamen because it was barely audible in the finished version. The guys in Metallica then played him a tape of a different version of the track they called the Elevator Version, one guitar, voice, and orchestra. 
It was so good that Kamen suggested they do a whole show. Eight years went by before Metallica agreed, which went on to become the S&M album, released in 1999. The nervousness and hesitation Metallica felt over their new, softer, more commercial sound came to a head as they hosted a massive free-listening party at Madison Square Garden ahead of the Black Album's release. Nothing signified this massive change of their sound more than nothing else matters, and James paced frantically all night, waiting for the ballad to come on. He'd later say that he snuck out in the audience as soon as the song came on, saying, quote, I had to run out there and see what they thought, if they were killing themselves, or killing each other, or falling asleep. To his surprise and relief, they weren't physically ill. The audience was attentive, listening to the words, and reacted as a whole positively. It's funny to hear that now, with hindsight being 2020. You listen to the track and you think, of course they reacted positively. It checks all the boxes of a commercial hit. A stirring, potent power ballad with immense emotional depth, specific enough to hit home a message, yet vague enough to be relatable. James would later say it was a real risk at the time being vulnerable, but that's the stuff people relate to the most. He said he first realized the impact of the song being invited to a Hells Angels clubhouse in New York, where they showed him a film they put together of one of their fallen brothers, and the soundtrack was Nothing Else Matters. As James would say, it meant a hell of a lot more than me missing my chick, right? While not as successful as lead single Enter Sandman, the album's third single still surpassed its predecessor, The Unforgiven, by making it to 34 on the Billboard Hot 100 and 6 in the UK. Nothing Else Matters has subsequently provided the emotional crescendo to most Metallica shows, making it all the more surprising that it didn't see its live debut more than seven months after the Black Album's release. Kirk was worried about messing it up, actually. The track was a rarity in that James handled all the guitar parts in the studio, including the solo. It just took a while for Kirk to develop the confidence to play James's intro parts by himself on stage. With Nothing Else Matters, Metallica had transgressed every boundary they'd set for themselves, and everyone set by the media and public expectation. They had proven that heavy, powerful music could come through more than one medium. They'd added a new dynamic to their music and opened their appeal beyond genre. They'd cracked it. It wasn't until they'd fleshed out all the 12 Black Album songs that they realized how far from their thrash roots they had progressed. Metallica, a.k.a. The Black Album, the band's fifth album and its first since 1988's Double Platinum and Justice for All, was released August 12, 1991. It not only entered the Billboard album chart at number one, it stayed there for an entire month. Five million copies of the album were sold in the U.S. in that first year alone. It wasn't just a domestic hit either, instantly topping charts in England, Germany, Switzerland, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and Norway. After years of being on the outside looking in, hailed as young gods of the 80s thrash underground, the band achieved what they sought out to do, to become a bona fide phenomenon. The four members of Metallica, James Hetfield, Lars Ulrich, Kirk Hammett, and Jason Newstead, now all in their late 20s, were no longer just in thrash metal's biggest band. They had become the world's biggest rock band, period. They were already out on tour in Europe when they got the news it went to number one. They were at a hotel in Budapest, where they were appearing second on the bill to ACDC at the Monsters of Rock Festival. Lars said he read the facts from their management and, for a moment, wasn't sure how to react, saying, quote, You think one day some fucker's gonna tell you you have a number one record in America and the whole world will ejaculate. I stood there in my hotel room and it was like, well, okay. It was just another fucking fax from the office. 
Metallica had made their out-of-the-box decision, and it paid off in spades. They became the cliched rock juggernaut, touring endlessly, building unstoppably. When they did call a halt a couple of years later, they were made, artistically, commercially, and financially. Because of the Black Album, life would never be the same again. They could do what the hell they wanted. They cut their hair, put on eyeliner, well, Kirk did anyways, played gigs with a symphony orchestra, offered up a remix album, they were free. James later said, quote, The Black Album just did its thing. It was amazing for the time and place and everything, but you can't live off that and try to recreate that for the rest of your career. You have to move and try things. We weren't going to do the Black Album Part 2, that's for sure. On the commercial side, the Black Album was a massive hit at the time, but what's even more remarkable is its staying power. The record continues to outsell major new releases every week and stands as one of the best-selling albums of all time of any genre. It has gone on to sell over 16 million copies in the U.S. alone. In 2020, it was ranked number 235 on Rolling Stone's The 500 Greatest Albums of All Time, and in December of 2019, it became the fourth release in American history to enter the 550-week milestone on the Billboard 200. In an interview, Anthrax's Charlie Benante looked back at his friends and fellow thrashers, saying, quote, It was like your older brother went to college and became Bill Gates. It was like, make sure you're right sometimes, please. And that was it. No longer was there really the big four. Metallica was this thing onto itself. They were this huge entity. When you have a record like the Black Album, when something is like Back in Black or Dark Side of the Moon, that's it. That's it. You know, goodbye. You don't need anything else. Critical reviews were also very positive, and not just from the metal press. The album received a glowing critical spotlight in Rolling Stone, Enemy, Time Out, The Village Voice, The LA Times, The New York Times, and others around the world lining up to sing its praises. This was the double whammy Metallica, and really every band ever, dreamed of. Commercial success beyond what people thought they could ever achieve, while building on their critical profile. They ventured into that unknown corner of making a commercial album they swore as kids they'd never make. They made an album so good, the world welcomed it being crammed down its throat. Lars would later acknowledge that it was kind of lucky, the timing of the release, where the band's headspace was at and where the music industry was at, saying, quote, This was the beginning of the 90s and all the pop stuff, the hair stuff, the whole LA thing was coming to an end. There was about to be a changing of the guard. There was a bunch of things brewing up in Seattle. There was a whole new kind of thing going on, and the whole music mainstream audience had been shifting very subtly further and further left over the course of the 80s. All of a sudden, all the 16-year-old kids were ready to embrace different things. So you can't take out the sort of way the planets are aligning analogy, and the planets just aligned in 91, 92 when that record came out. It all just came together at the right time, with the right songs, the right producer, the right attitude, and the right temperature on the music scene to create this absolute fucking monster that that record then became, for better or worse. Bob would later say, quote, It actually changed something culturally. Everybody owned that album. Dentists loved the Black Album. There was a musical transition when the album came out, and it changed radio because that heavy sound was now on the radio. I don't think I've made a record that had done that before. I'm very proud of that. Despite its phenomenal success, the Black Album continues to be a bone of contention among some of the band's hardcore fans with many believing that radio-friendly hard rock anthems like Enter Sandman, The Unforgiven, and Nothing Else Matters utterly betrayed the thrash metal promise of Metallica's first four albums. 
Some point the finger at Bob Rock, accusing him of motley crewifying Metallica. James has half-jokingly said, The word Bob strikes fear into all metalheads. But to this day, all members of Metallica agree Bob never made them change their sound. He was just really successful at making them sound like the best versions of themselves they could possibly be. He was good at expanding their mind to new possibilities, however much of a grind it was to cut through their stubbornness. Bob later said, quote, When I listen to the tapes now, I hear the hours and the time and the conflict. Lars has said the album speaks for itself. However, it did take a toll on their personal relationship, saying, quote, I resented Bob Rock. Me and Bob Rock didn't speak for like the first year after that record was made. It was ugly, nasty. I never made a record that took that long to make. Then something strange happened a year or two after that, and we became friends. Now I can't imagine making an album without him. Bob would go on to produce all their future albums up until the highly contentious St. Anger in 2003. But Bob admits they never caught lightning in the bottle like they did with the Black Album, saying, quote, After 15 years working with Metallica, all I remember is that that was the only album I ever did with them where I got four guys who all had the same kind of vision. When you have a goal to be the biggest band in the world, you kind of put all your personality things to the side. It's almost like a marriage. Hell, the members of Metallica were so focused on their creativity that it put a strain on their personal lives. Three of the four band members, Lars, Jason, and Kirk, even went through divorces during its production. The message within the Black Album speaks to the leaps and risks the band members took in making it. It speaks to individualism, liberty, personal development, and the importance of getting out of your comfort zone. It's an appropriate theme given the enormous amount of work and dedication the album took to produce. Nevertheless, they pushed through to create an album that would transform their lives. While making it, James summed up the band's philosophy, saying, quote, I don't think we need to justify ourselves at all. We're doing our shit our way. The integrity is there. The result speaks for itself. Or to echo that statement more poetically, so close, no matter how far, couldn't be much more from the heart. Forever trusting who we are, no, nothing else matters. Hey guys, thanks for listening. If you'd like to keep up to date with everything I got going on with this channel, be sure to follow my Instagram page. Also, I do have a YouTube channel where I condense individual stories from my podcast into short video form. So please like and subscribe on there as well. Thanks again.